everyone with an interest in NASH or, more broadly, fatty liver disease, surf's up. Season 2, Episode 30 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami, our follow-up to International NASH Day, starts now. To sum up what the action plan is, is a sizable document, but our goal was to make it digestible as well. It really, it is a roadmap for how we think every stakeholder in the health community can address or positively move the needle forward on addressing NASH. I can't think of a child or an adolescent. I've scanned who's got fatty liver disease through our parents who haven't then gone on immediately to change something in the diet. As simple as high fructose drinks or a bit of McDonald's nearly every day. There's a sense of panic, a sense of anxiety. People are looking for quick and complete resolution in something that's taken a number of years to develop. As health professionals, we can allay those fears and give a time frame, understanding some small differences. I agree with Louise. The issue is really getting at how do we make it easier for providers to render a diagnosis of NASH and then begin to institute treatment paradigms. We are looking from a more whole health aspect when we talk about the patient. We just don't look only at liver enzymes or fiber scan. We also look at their cardiovascular risk and put it all together and teach the patient. On our experiences, that's how you get the attention of the patient and also the willingness to make a change in their life. All the other people that we're trying to engage, primary care physicians, the patients themselves, they don't want to hear, well, you might have NASH, but I'm not sure. And you might have gotten better, but I'm not sure. So if we could come to a point where we're of confidence, in the diagnosis. I think that will help many of the steps in this process. Now that the events of International NASH Day are over, join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guests, Madrigal Pharmaceuticals co-founder, CMO and president of research and development Becky Taub, Central Virginia VA Health System director of hepatology and key opinion leader Dr. Michael Fuchs and Global Liver Institute director of policy Andrew Scott as they discuss GLI's U.S. NASH Action Plan, today on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. Before we get started, I want to thank Magical Pharmaceutical for sponsoring today's episode. Magical Pharmaceuticals is leading the field of NASH therapeutic development with resmeteram, a thyroid hormone receptor beta agonist with potential to address both the liver pathophysiology and fibrosis caused by NASH. As you're listening to this podcast, International NASH Day 2021 has just wrapped up with Chef Daniel Thomas's exceptional presentation after a day of eight panels and a whole bunch of energy and excitement and thinking and learning. We're recording this on Monday, but we know the kind of exciting, informative, energizing day we've all just had. Today, we have five surfers with us, some old, some new. Louise and Stephen are here. Hi, Louise. Hi, everybody. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Roger. Hey, guys. And our friend Andrew Scott, Director of Global Policy at GLI, is back for the first time since December. So, Andrew, how crazy has it been getting ready for International NASH Day. You know, you can always tell yourself you're prepared, but some way, you know, it always ends up being a little hair on fire, but we're pulling it together and we're excited. So. Having already had my modem crash and one of my pieces of instrumentation not being here in the last 20 minutes, I don't know what having to improvise looks like, but you guys are doing it on a much bigger scale than that. We also have two first-time guests with us. Uh, Michael Fuchs is the acting director of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, the chief of hepatology and transplant services, and a leading hepatology researcher, all working from the Central Virginia VA Health System in Richmond, Virginia. Michael, how are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me on today. Well, I'm delighted, and we're looking forward to having you back at least a couple of times and then in the next couple of months that we've discussed, so that's a good thing. And then with us, we also have Becky Taub, who is the, Becky, I don't have all your titles, very co-founder, chief medical officer, president of research and development at uh, Magical Pharmaceuticals, and really just a leading eminence on the commercial side of this field. And Becky, we're thrilled to have you here today, headphones and all. How are you doing today? Doing great and very happy to be here. And coming through loud and clear. Your sound check obviously worked out really well on Friday. That's a good thing. We have a lot of ground to cover. And first thing I would like to do, take a couple of minutes, tell us about yourself and 
you know, what you do and what you've done in your career that our audience should know. And then please end with one thing that our audience would not know about you if you didn't tell them. So, Michael, go ahead. And then after that, Becky. Sure. So I guess I'm, I'm going to share with you all some very personal insights, which is probably quite unique. So I was born in Germany, completed my medical school at the University of Ulm in southern Germany, and completed my entire internal medicine training at the University of Lübeck, and then did a GI fellowship again in Ulm, where I took over as a chief of pathology a couple of years later in 2003. But you probably wonder how I got to the U.S. So early on during medical school, I got involved in Ben's research investigating regulation of bioelectric synthesis. And during that time, I met a key person, Edward Stanger, a former trainee of John Deachy at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And his early and continued support over the years was of critical importance. And without him, I would not be where I am today. And I'm honored to call him one of my best friends. So funded by the German Research Foundation, the German you know, NIH, as well as the AG, I was able to spend three years in the laboratories of David Cohen and Martin Carey at the Harvard Digestive Diseases Center in Boston before returning uh, to Reno Night with my mentor Ed Stang in 1996 and to start my own research group over there. But the decision to move entirely to the U.S. for my future career and life developed during my Boston years and I was waiting just for a good time to pursue the step. And this came in 2006 when Arun Sanyal recruited me to Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. So saying goodbye to family and many friends was not easy. And I could not have done such a huge step with the full support of my family and my wife. So for the next six years, I had the great honor of working closely with Arun, who introduced me to an entire new world, the world of clinical research in NASH. He also provided me with needed guidance when transitioning as a physician from the German to the U.S. healthcare system. And within two years after arriving in Richmond and months after our second child was born, my wife unfortunately was diagnosed with breast cancer. And this turned out to be a real-life challenging event for me. And during this extremely challenging time with no family in the U.S., I had to shift my focus on the well-being of my two young children. But I always will remember the support I've received from my work families at VCU and the VA, and which allowed me to survive and overcome the devastating passing of my wife four years later. So over the last eight years, the GI division at the VA has given me many opportunities to grow professionally and allowed me to build the largest nephrology clinical research program at the VA hospital in the country, become chief of chief, uh, hepatology, and more recently, the entire GI division. So over the years, I have taken on several leadership roles within and outside VA to support sustained progress in addressing NASH at the healthcare system level. But I have to also mention today that as a government employee, I need to clearly state that my comments and thoughts do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Veteran Affairs or the U.S. government. So with regard to what somebody would not know about me personally, if I wouldn't tell them, what comes to mind is, and I have to thank my parents here because they allowed me to experience different cultures and countries at very early age. So when I was 10 years old, I was given the opportunity to visit distant family in New Jersey without my parents, so totally traveling alone. I stayed there for several weeks, traveled along the East Coast, attended a classical U.S. sports camp, and enjoyed the American way of life. Ironically, I had to come to New York at that time to meet the famous German soccer player Franz Beckenbauer, who played at that time with the New York Cosmos. I very much enjoyed the people and lifestyle and already at that age developed a strong desire to sometime come back to this country. Michael, that's an amazing story and very impressive. I have a question for you. When you met Beckenbauer, did you get to meet any of his teammates? Because when Beckenbauer played at Cosmos, Pele was there also and Giorgio Canaglia, uh, two, two other world-class, very famous soccer players. Did you get to meet either of them? Beckenbauer would have been enough, but just wondering. Uh, no, I only met Beckenbauer. I mean, I, I saw Pelé and the Italian player from the more distant, but it was quite an experience. I can imagine for a, for a child that age, being in New York, New Jersey and meeting Beckenbauer must have been phenomenal. Thank you very much for all that. Okay, Becky, uh, your turn. Two to three minutes about yourself and then something we wouldn't know if, we, if you didn't tell us. Thanks, Roger. So, my background is a little different entirely in the U.S. I was trained in medicine, but then did a postdoctoral fellowship in molecular biology when that was a fairly new field at the time. And ultimately, 
ended up as a professor at Penn and Howard Hughes investigator, where I did that for quite a few years. And then around 2000, decided to become a pharmaceutical researcher. And I was first at uh, DuPont, then Bristol-Myers, and then at Roche, leading research groups that were focused on discovering new medicines in a variety of different disease areas. Now, while I was at Penn, I worked on the field of liver regeneration, so I was particularly interested in liver biology. And while at Roche, working in metabolic diseases, I noticed, and this is sort of the mid-2005, that several of the drugs we were working on had an impact or potential impact in reducing fatty liver, which really wasn't at that time, as you'll hear, really well understood as a potential disease entity. From there, I joined after Roche. I was able to license a couple of programs from Roche, ended up founding Madrigal Pharmaceuticals in 2011. And then over several years with very early programs, we were finally able to become a public entity in 2016 and get enough money to actually develop a drug at that time called MGL3196. And then more recently, resmetarone, which is now in phase three development for the treatment of NASH with what we call significant fibrosis or F2, F3 fibrosis. So we'll get to talk about that a little bit more during this podcast. In terms of, I could probably tell you a lot of things that you wouldn't know about me over the years. What has always been exciting to me, and I think some of you know, is that sports, activities, skiing has been something that I've enjoyed all my life. More recently, I have two children and both are expecting children now. My daughter-in-law is expecting a child in about a week, which would be my first grandchild, and then my daughter in a few months. So that's a really exciting time for our family. My wife always says, and I concur, that grandchildren are the reason you had your kids in the first place, once you get to the other side of it. And grandparenting is the best experience of my life, and I commend it to you completely. Sounds fabulous. We're very, very excited for you. Okay, thank you, Becky. With that, why don't we dive into today's episode? I want to use a different groundbreaker than usual, because since this episode is about Global Liver Institute and the U.S. Action Plan, I'd like our icebreaker to focus on, for each of you, how long have you been involved with GLI? How did you become involved? And how do you support GLI today? Brave one, go first. Oh, I'll jump in and be the brave one then. Oh, well, I didn't really have any involvement with GLI until the podcast where I was lucky to meet Donna last year. And Stephen and yourself accused us of being a dating site because Donna and I hooked up and I joined GLI then. And I try and attend as many of the monthly meetings. Obviously, I'm UK based, but I'm happy to chip in with a few idea suggestions and listen to the great work that they're doing. So I support everything they do from that perspective and particularly the global aspect. And I'd certainly like to have more opportunities to work in the field in Australia when I get back. So that's my involvement currently. Yeah, I'll jump in. So uh, I'm not as brave as Louise, but you know, not many people are. So uh, I'll say I've known Donna for a while, Donna Cryer, and a fabulous woman with lots of vision and a significant amount of energy and horsepower to support the vision. And uh, while, again, I, I haven't been intimately involved with GLI prior to the podcast, I've been um, enamored by the work that, that she is doing to grow a collaborative effort to bring awareness to patients relative to fatty liver disease in particular. So so just glad that uh, we could be a part of that through the podcast and support her and the rest of her team's activities. Excellent. Okay, Michael, Becky, Andrew. Yeah, so I think uh, looking back, um, my involvement with the Global Liver Institute, I think dates back to sometime in 2018. And again, like some of the other people on the call, and that was when I met Donna Cryer during, uh, I think it was an FLD meeting organized by the Chronic Liver Disease Foundation. And I really was impressed of her and her work 
work to improve uh, you know, the lives of individuals and families you know, impacted by chronic liver diseases, and particularly in NFLD. And uh, while uh, initially I was following her work more from a distance, I then was given the opportunity to be part of the NASH Action Plan Task Force organized by Andrew. And this work was so stimulating and resulted in the plan Andrew will discuss shortly. And I have used this action plan, or I'm trying to use it to extract pieces to propose a plan that I hope my organization, the Veterans Health Administration, will in some way or the other you know, adopt uh, in the future. And you know, I think with the support of the Global Liver Institute and other stakeholders, I hope that uh, we will be able to improve patient education, get our healthcare system prepared and in better shape to provide the care our veterans uh, certainly deserve. Thanks, Michael. Becky, why don't you go next and then I'll go and we'll let Andrew um, talk about his history as a lead into what he's going to present today. So Madrigal has actually become a recent sponsor of International NASH Day. We've been aware of GLI for several years, but haven't been in a position really of thinking about sponsoring patient outreach efforts and disease awareness efforts until very recently. And we're very excited to be involved with this effort. That's great, Becky. Thank you. And as far as I go, right after we started this podcast, we were casting around for episodes to do. And Louise, I think, or Steve, I don't remember which one, I think it was Louise first mentioned International Nash Day to me the week before it happened last year. And we worked quickly. We were fortunate enough to have Donna come on and join us. And we've been huge fans ever since. We did an episode right before, I guess, and after International Nash Day. We did a couple with Andrew at the end of the year about the global policy and policy issues as they relate to Nash in advance of the release of the action plan. And then I guess we were here a couple of weeks ago with Donna talking about this event and Andrew will be with us today. And we're looking for more things to do going forward because we are um, huge supporters of all the work that you folks do and all the different spheres in which you work. It's, it's really somewhere between compelling and amazing to me how much you guys get done. And with that, Andrew, let me turn it over to you, answer the question. And then if you want, just dive into talking a little bit about the U.S. Nash Action Plan. Thank you, Roger. And, you know, actually, uh, you know, I think previously when I was last on, I, I talked about maybe my background a little bit, but, you know, how I landed at GLI, I think we can all admit and what was clear in everyone's responses a, a moment ago, you know, Donna has a present and she really can can move mountains. You know, that's how I actually kind of came to meet her is I worked at Endo Pharmaceuticals and my previous role was in government affairs there. And we were very much involved with the Personalized Medicine Coalition. And Donna was also involved with the Personalized Medicine Coalition. And that's where I kind of first crossed paths with her. And then, you know, when things kind of shifted and another couple of roles later for myself, I ended up landing on, on Donna and this organization, Global Liver Institute, and things were really starting to pick up. And this was in 2019. And I pounced on the opportunity to, to join the movement and the groundswell that Donna's really created. And it's been a, a whirlwind two years, but it's been exciting every step of the way. You know, I, I did a little bit of this last year or late last year, but just a kind of brief overview of what our thought process was with this U.S. NASH action plan. And really where we saw ourselves as, as Global Liver Institute and the role that we could play. So kind of to sum up what the action plan is, it's a sizable document, but our goal was to make it digestible as well. That really it is a roadmap for how we think every stakeholder in the health community can address or positively move the needle forward on addressing NASH. And this is something that we felt that there were bits and pieces all over and many stakeholders in the health community were maybe actively working towards something positive in their their respective field or their respective sector, but there was a gap in, in collaboration and communication. And that's where we saw ourselves as kind of coalescers of the of the field, especially within our, our Nash Council. We saw an opportunity that, hey, we can bring everyone together. As Michael mentioned, you know, we can bring together a strong task force to get voices from all different sectors to talk about Nash and to build out these actionable recommendations for the field and develop this roadmap. And as we go forward, our hope is to really go down the list of, of each of these recommendations and find ways that we are addressing them and essentially checking them off as, as potential positive steps towards the future. And, you know, to kind of briefly summarize where these recommendations fall, you know, they, they kind of hit the, the main four buckets that we all know are issues in the field of NASH. Lack of awareness and education, lack of agreement on how to diagnose, lack of standardized patient management and treatment for NASH, and then, of course, lack of NASH-specific policy initiatives leading to poor 
health system preparedness. So those kind of four main buckets are where we branched out and created a, a variety of recommendations for really every stakeholder in the health community, from patients and even for ourselves, patient advocacy organizations, to medical societies, regulators, policymakers, health systems at large, payers, really trying to hit every stakeholder and provide that roadmap, uh, those recommendations that they can follow. And and I should briefly mention is that we've already seen some some positive success with this just by showing this to Capitol Hill and other places. I mean, that is many times the first question you get from legislators is, well, what, what do you want us to do? You know, what is your recommendation for us? And if you have something that provides that roadmap, it's a great building block to go forward on. And of course, we, we understand that this isn't the end-all, be-all in action plans, but it is the stepping stone that will hopefully lead to a lot of positive movement. Andrew, that's a great insight. And I don't know if this is the place we were going to start, but you mentioned it, so let's start here. I know you shared with legislators on Capitol Hill, and so far that's produced some results, I guess, of mention. You want to talk about that a little bit, and then we'll go item by item through the four planks? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm happy to do a, a deeper dive on this later as well, but you know, it's very exciting that we have started really developing champions for NASH on Capitol Hill and kind of providing these recommendations, have laid that foundation that has led to what we're hopeful to see in the very near future, the reintroduction of the NASH CARE Act. Uh, this is a piece of legislation that was introduced late last congressional term, late last year. And we have these champions, these two members of Congress in the House, Congressman Dan Cranshaw from Texas and Congressman Raul Ruiz from California, who are very excited about addressing NASH. And they are excited to reintroduce this piece of legislation in the very near future. We hope to see that soon. We're kind of working through the process now with legislative council, but in the very near future, we should hopefully have an introduced bill. And this bill will focus on some of the earlier pieces for addressing NASH. Not going to hit everything. When we were having conversations with some of the other stakeholders in the community and, and having conversations with Capitol Hill, we we're thinking of what would lead to the best chance of this bill hopefully moving forward. And that's where we thought, okay, let's focus on the beginning to start, and then we'll branch out from that later on. And that is giving CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the tools to accurately survey NASH and develop the scope and create an accurate picture of NASH. Also, building out prevention and awareness grant opportunities. And then, of course, building an actual recommendation for where the federal government should go forward by having an interagency, interdivision, cross-sector task force focused on NASH and ensuring that throughout that are strong recommendations on prevention and awareness, how to treat and manage NASH, and of course, how to diagnose it utilizing non-invasive diagnostics. So very much touching on a lot of those buckets that we mentioned in the action plan. But again, this will be a stepping stone as well, like so many of these other recommendations. But it's exciting to see some movement on Capitol Hill that will hopefully lead to plenty more opportunities in the future. Roger, can I interject and ask one question towards Andrew? I think it's great to have two members of Congress you know, being NASH champions. But I think it would be even better if every state would have a champion. Is that something the Global Liver Institute you know, is working towards? And, and how feasible is that? Yes. So, Michael, I'm glad you bring that up. And I feel like there's a lot of pieces to this that we're excited to kind of be moving forward kind of in tandem. But we recently announced the expansion of a new program or a newer program at Global Liver Institute called the Liver Action Network. And this is essentially is an advocacy network that's all across the United States. Now, 39 states are represented. And then we also recently saw multiple more local organizations, liver advocacy organizations, join the Liver Action Network as well, including the Liver Coalition of San Diego, the Mid-South Liver Alliance, the Liver Wellness Foundation, and then also the Texas Liver Foundation. Uh, obviously, we hope to see more organizations at the local level join as well. But again, this will get to your point. Uh, this is, of course, a starting point with having these two members of Congress. They are part of the most valuable committee from our perspective on this bill, specifically in the House of Representatives, which is the Health Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee. So having both of them kind of gives us a leg up. But as well, you know, I couldn't agree more that our hope is to utilize this newly expanded Liver Action Network to build more support, especially after the bill is reintroduced and hopefully lead to it moving quickly. Okay, Michael, thanks for the question. Andrew, thanks for the answer. If anyone else has questions, great. If not, I'd love for you to go ahead and talk a little bit about the specific initiatives and issues that you folks have identified around awareness and education and how different stakeholders can help. Sure. So when we go through the individual kind of bucket, we really try to think what are the biggest values that each respective stakeholder could bring? When we're thinking of education, diagnosis, patient management and treatment and policy efforts, each stakeholder has 
values and roles that they can play in addressing these issues. I, I won't list all of them out, but looking specifically at, for example, medical societies. And we think of amazing work that we see from the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease and the American Gastroenterological Association and more. What can they do to move the field forward in education, as an example? And thinking, well, we need to get more education for primary care providers. We need to get more education potentially of other specialties. We're thinking of national holistically. So again, when we look at each of these four buckets, we are trying to pick out what specific things can they do. And in that case, continuing medical education, opportunities like that, collaboration, collaboration with patient advocacy organizations on those CMEs, things like that can be opportunities for medical societies to educate other specialties, to educate other providers, and also educate patients as needed as well, but also collaborate with patient advocacy organizations. So that's just an example. We're starting to see some success on those already, but going through each of those, what value can every stakeholder bring? So let me ask the panel, on that kind of issue, where do you believe your organizations or your efforts have the ability to bring value? I can actually start, which is to say that one of the things that we've been looking at, and I'm not sure exactly how we're going to handle yet, is when we go back and look at this prevalence study that Stephen had done with the two of them, 11 and 21, that we were talking about the other week, you start to understand even more than you might have previously the interaction or interconnection between diabetes and NASH. So one of the things that we've started casting around for are ways that we can use this podcast or other audio programming to create a foundation to talk about that issue a lot more extensively and to focus on it a lot more directly, because clearly that's one area where education and awareness can benefit with endocrinologists, with patients, with advocates, with everybody. So I don't know what that means yet. We're just at the beginning stages, but that's one that became obvious to us. Other thoughts, other comments? I'll jump in a little bit here. It's very exciting, and I think it's a, a great action plan. Obviously, it's specific to NASH. But I've said on the podcast before, I think education is absolutely vital. Education personally has to start a lot earlier. A large role can be played in education in schools, that people are built differently, to understand that people come in different sizes, to get an understanding that you can actually be larger but fit. I think there's this misconception that just because people are overweight and obese, that they're not necessarily fit. So, we look at an individual in a certain way and we do have to change our narrative to look at that more holistically and not just say one size fits all. So I think that understanding has to start with schools. Children grow up understanding better that other children could be larger. There's the potential to lose that stick to accept people as individuals. That's really important when we look at lean Nash, because everybody assumes that somebody's slim, that they can't have a problem. Everybody assumes the opposite if you're larger. And we've said the other week that every person is a potential Nash patient and NAFL D and every NAFL D patient doesn't look like everyone else. It is absolutely vital that we get education out there from all different walks of life and it can be done at every level and that leads to better education and understanding in medical professionals and associated healthcare personally. Yeah, this is Stephen. Let me jump in here as well. I think education awareness is absolutely vital. To me, I think of it as a three-legged stool. Who's who's responsible for that education and awareness and who's delivering the educational content to be described relative to this disease state. So to me, I, I see patient advocacy groups as one leg. I see biotech and pharmaceutical companies as another leg. And I see our societies like AASLD and the European Association for the Study of Liver as really the predominant other leg. Now, there's nuances to all that, but I think simplistically that, that gets us a lot of traction if we're able to harmonize those three different legs. What holds them all together between the legs, I think, are the, the academic folks, the folks that are driving the understanding of this disease throughout the world, both at the bench level and at the clinical level. And so the more that societies or the advocacy groups like the Global Liver Institute can lead that charge in helping to harmonize this education and awareness delivery platform is absolutely critical and something that's been missed for a while. You could also argue that from a pharma perspective, there's been no 
drugs that have been close to being approved until the past two years or so. And so we've kind of missed out on that opportunity. But now I think with a clear path to approval and drugs that are marching towards that finish line, having that leg of the stool come alongside and begin to help bring that awareness is going to be critical. And then finally, we're working hard within AASLD as the NAFLD SIG chair, special interest group chair. That's one of the initiatives that we've really tried to focus on during the COVID pandemic by bringing more webinars, even more specific podcasts through AASLD relative to fatty liver and broadening out our educational content, not only to the academic folks, but to industry and to others, as noted by the Emerging Topic Conference that will be virtual the 17th and 18th of this month, specifically focused on NASH. So so I think it's a combined effort, and it's not just an awareness to physicians and to different physician groups outside of hepatology, which we could identify as cardiologists and endocrinologists, but, but even some of the more peripheral groups, if you will, GYN, OBGYN providers that still are primary care providers for many women, particularly those at risk for fatty liver that are over the age of 50 and postmenopausal. And one that I really like to talk about would be podiatrists. These are people that see diabetic foot ulcers and prescribe more antifungal agents probably than anybody else for toenail fungus. And what is the one thing they have to check? Well, liver enzymes because of the potential for drug-induced liver injury. So this group of people sees an inordinate amount of fatty liver patients and they don't really know what to do with them. So it's educating multiple different providers in multiple different ways. And then the whole other piece of that is patient awareness. We need the patients to come forward. And many times I hear these patients in my clinic come to me and say, I don't understand, Dr. Harrison, you're telling me I have advanced liver disease. But for two decades, my doctor has told me I had fatty liver and there's really nothing to worry about, just lose weight and exercise. And so I'm having to have this conversation with them that no, in fact, in some people, the disease can progress, even if liver enzymes don't appear to be going up or, you know, or you don't feel bad. So there's a a huge amount of effort and it begins with education and awareness. Yeah, I I would just like to touch on one point that uh, Steve made on that awareness aspect. I think that the thought still among many of the primary care physicians and even in what they tell the patients is that they don't raise any alarms about their patient's liver unless these patients have very high liver enzymes. And we know that in most cases, NASH doesn't lead to liver enzyme elevations that are above what is called the upper limit of normal. In fact, when we, we look at our phase three data, and these are all advanced NASH patients with significant liver fibrosis, only about 10 or 15% of those patients who have biopsy-confirmed NASH fibrosis have significantly elevated liver enzymes that are one and a half, two-fold or more over the upper limit of normal. And so it's really very important to think about how we can diagnose NASH and get people to learn about that they may have higher risk of having significant liver disease than may be apparent from looking at some of the simple lab tests we have. I'd be interested if Michael, Steve, and others on the call would comment on that. Yeah, if I can make a couple of comments. We, we all understand how critical education is and awareness. And while that is correct, it has to start you know, at the level of school. As a provider, we need to focus, particularly when I'm looking at, at my organization, how can I have the, the biggest impact? And the biggest impact in terms of addressing education is you know, reaching out to primary care because probably different to other healthcare systems, you know, many of the comorbidities like diabetes are treated you know, by, by primary care and not necessarily only by the endocrine so we really have to reach out to primary care to teach them, but also make them good teachers to teach their patients because hepatology or specialists cannot take on a large number of patients in terms of educating. So we need to get primary care on board and provide them with the tools that they can, after they have been educated and understand the impact of NAFLD, to train and teach their patients. And NAFLD is 
is not very high on the priority list of primary care. And when we talk about educating primary care, we also have to be mindful that we'll find a good way that is palatable for primary care to actually listen to what we're telling them, particularly if you consider all the mandates they have to meet. So having good access to primary care and getting them on board is very crucial. And we need to present it not only to primary care, but also to our healthcare system leadership that MAPLD should have at least the similar priorities related to GI like colorectal cancer screening. All of you brought up such amazing and great points. And I think it really underlines the truth about this action plan is that it's not necessarily recreating the wheel. We really were hoping to, and I'm glad that we're all so in alignment here, is we really were just hoping to capture the viewpoints of what is already out there. So as Luis mentioned, we're talking about family-based education, ensuring that that is a recommendation for patient advocacy organizations to create educational materials that are targeted at full family-based education. Or as Michael mentioned, educating primary care providers. That's recommendation for clinician. But then also, we're talking about barriers for the future. We're trying to think holistically here. Patient is, you know, the the most critical point. We could not agree more so about initially, but then also ensuring that there are not barriers in the future. As Stephen and Roger mentioned, the the lack of therapies until the hopeful approval of of a couple recently, there hasn't been anything. And working to ensure the regulators and recommendations for those regulators that barriers are removed or that they understand the field appropriately is also vital. So there are just so many pieces that go into this, but I think it's great that there's so much alignment here and that the action plan is really just putting these points, uh, these amazing points into words, which is exciting. Andrew, that's great. And as I was listening, I was making notes about a couple of comments people made that I think are practical and amazingly helpful. For example, Becky used the phrase liver enzymes in a situation where a lot of people would use the phrase liver function tests. But the reality is something that has minimal relationship to the actual performance of the liver is not a function test, it's an enzyme, right? So simply getting the language changed so that everybody speaks the way that Becky does instead of the way many other people do seems like nothing is simple. But a relatively straightforward way to maybe reduce some of the comfort level that primary care physicians, for example, might have when they see a ALT or AST level, ALT level notably, that, that's normal in, in, in a patient that has challenge was one thought. Second thought I had, and this moves into your next priority about what makes it easier, is the whole issue beyond the biopsy and getting better and more widely accepted and easier to use tests to screen. I guess any of us could talk about that, but would you like to comment about that? And then I want to throw it out to the group to talk about beyond the biopsy a little bit. Sure. Yes. As one of our recommendations in the plan, essentially for ourselves or for patient advocacy organizations, is to assist in this movement in shifting away from biopsies. And this is really where our initiative beyond the biopsy kind of came to be. And really the focus has kind of been very much to your point, removing as many barriers as possible and essentially advocating for using whatever diagnostic that, you know, is proven to be effective, but using whatever diagnostic is available to reach the proper conclusion while not having to stick a needle in someone's body that is subject to sampling variability and a variety of other issues. Obviously, it's extremely invasive and burdensome on the patient. I'm sure Donna would mention, you know, sitting there for for hours in the operating chair waiting to get a, a biopsy is not fun for any patient to say the least. So that only adds to our push there. But again, really central to this is how can we simplify this so that we can diagnose the liver earlier and effectively to then get to the prevention aspects or get to addressing fatty liver disease or NASH as early as possible. So really, it's been an ongoing initiative. We're very excited talking about having more uh, congressional champions involved Last year, we had multiple members of Congress give opening remarks to a few different briefings on moving beyond the biopsy. And then we've also done a variety of other kind of continuing medical education in partnership with some of the medical societies we've previously mentioned on moving beyond the biopsy and more. So it's exciting to think about where it will go next. And then also, I just will briefly mention, and this is a slight side note, but talking about the language of NASH, there's a lot of confusion or not confusion necessarily, but disagreement on how to talk about NASH or the terminology that should be used. 
That was a, another recommendation for patient advocacy organizations in our, in our plan, but we did release the language of NASH, uh, which essentially provides that messaging framework, which touches on some of your points as well, Roger. But, you know, kind of both of these initiatives are really kind of getting to some of these other issues as well that we see in the field of NASH. Luis, Stephen touch on this stuff from time to time. Interested in your thoughts about the importance of beyond the biopsy and or the language of NASH in terms of getting everybody to a stronger and more common ground on understanding what the disease is and what we can do about that. I think the language we use often in the medical profession or in the akin and associated areas is sometimes a little bit too medical, I suppose. I know numerous patients who can have their letters, their discussions for years and years, and it says cirrhosis all over it. But when you come to discuss cirrhosis with them, they don't understand what it means. So I think we do have to make language understandable. We have to explain it in ways, in different ways for different people to understand how they can make changes. And I think it's one of the key aspects to engaging any individual. I very rarely, and in fact, I can't think of an opportunity where I've not scanned a child or an adolescent who's got fatty liver disease with any of the parents there who haven't then gone on immediately to change something in the diet, as simple as full fat Cokes or the high fructose drinks or a bit of McDonald's nearly every day or every part of the week. And just understanding that small differences can change in that language. They're not going to try and cure it all at that moment in time. And a lot of the sense that I get, and I don't know about the others, is that people are looking for quick and complete resolution in something that's taken a number of years to develop. There's a sense of panic, a sense of anxiety that as health professionals, we can allay those fears and give a time frame and every little movement forward helps. Just getting that understanding is one of the key and first steps that I spend time doing with our clients. I agree with Louise often, and I agree with her here as well. I, I think the issue of this beyond the biopsy is, is really getting at how do we make it easier for providers to render a diagnosis of NASH and then begin to institute treatment paradigms. And clearly, we need to get beyond the biopsy. When I talk to providers, the excuse that, that was raised and has been raised for many, many years has been, when you bring me a treatment, Dr. Harrison, I will begin to work up my patients. Well, well, we're on the verge of having a treatment, but the paradigm has shifted a bit. The pendulum has shifted a bit based on the increasing prevalence and severity of disease. We can't afford to just sit back and tell our patients to casually lose weight and exercise and not be prescriptive with a more carefully crafted care plan for these individuals. And that care plan includes making a more accurate diagnosis so that we can appropriately give them a prognosis. Because without making the right diagnosis, we're shooting from the hip and shooting in the blind as to how our patients are going to be five, 10 years from now. And I don't want to be the provider that tells a patient there's nothing to worry about, lose a little weight and exercise, and this will not be an issue for you. And I don't want others to be in that same boat either. So we have to get beyond the biopsy. There are some simple things we can do in the clinic to really identify at-risk individuals from simple things like identifying patients with diabetes or diabetes and obesity or metabolic syndrome with or without elevated liver enzymes. And this gets back to that three-legged stool because we're going to need societies to help modify the guidance documents that are out there to begin to advocate for screening in our high-risk populations. And then we can talk about what is screening? What does that involve? Is it a blood-based test? Is it an imaging modality? Is it a combination of both of those? We know that gives us a better positive predictive value. Any one of these alone has a high negative predictive value. Education around what those imaging and blood-based biomarkers are would also be important. So there's a lot to, to do here. Maybe even more than education and awareness is coming to an agreement on how to appropriately diagnose and triage patients with fatty liver. I was just going to ask Michael and Stephen, and maybe Becky, a question. And how many times when you talk to a patient in clinic about if we don't see a change in your liver in three months' time, we're going to biopsy you? And how many times out of 10 would you say that those patients actually improve their liver fat to avoid having a biopsy? Because, of course, you do your fibroscans. And I think we've seen it a lot at Imperial, and I've seen it a lot elsewhere, that that motivation, 
decision to avoid biopsy is quite a behavior modifier. I think that what we are doing is looking from a you know, more whole health aspect when we talk about the patient. We just don't look only at liver enzymes or fibro scan. We also look at their cardiovascular risk and put it all together and teach the patient. Our you know, experience is that's how you get the attention of the patient and also the willingness to make a change in their life. But what I want to also add is that I think, again, the, the VA is probably leading here, at least in the U.S., by you know, having come up uh, under the uh, leadership of Tim Morgan to put together a consensus recommendation for the diagnosis and management of an FLD in a multidisciplinary approach. And even if this is not a guideline that is mandated to follow, it clearly you know, will raise the awareness among all stakeholders within the VA. And it also defines a path how to diagnose NASH without a biopsy, because we clearly cannot biopsy everyone who we think has NASH. So I think this document is very helpful. And even if I would have liked to see a clear statement that diabetics should be screened. I think we are getting there. I actually had a, a question or would like to have a comment from Andrew, and that is related to that VA in general, even after having recognized the necessity to address an FLD and, and coming up with those consensus recommendations, VA basically follows the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force with regard to guidelines. They don't follow necessarily ASLD or ESA guidelines. So how can the Global Liver Institute help put this on the radar of the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force? That's a great question, Michael. You know, we actually have been actively advocating with USPSTF to make some of these recommendations. Most importantly, we saw recently the release, and this happened in April, and this again kind of goes towards some of our, touching on some of those recommendations within the action plan, but the USPSTF released recommendations for screening for patients with obesity for type 2 diabetes. Within those recommendations, disappointingly, they did not mention NASH or fatty liver disease. And while we understand that that was not necessarily the intention of this specific screening statement from USPSTF, it is very important, as we clearly mentioned, that the most at-risk population is type 2 diabetes. And having a conversation with that population of their risks for fatty liver disease and NASH is critical. So we sent a letter. We're still actively working with USPSTF, but we sent a letter with the broad liver advocacy community and support, including ASLD, AGA, the Endocrine Society, and more in support of this letter, stressing to the United States Preventive Services Task Force to include fatty liver disease and NASH in an update to this statement. Thankfully, that statement is only a draft, so we could see this positive result soon, but we continue actively working with them. And then obviously, a next step would be an actual specific NASH screening recommendation from the USPSTF, but that is very much in our plans for the future. Thanks for the question, Michael, and thanks for the answer, Andrew. We're close to the end of our time today. I'd like everyone to comment on a four-word phrase in the action plan, and then after that, we'll go on to our closing question. The four-word phrase is in the fourth initiative statement, the one we haven't really covered yet, and describes, and I'm quoting, poor health system preparedness, end of quote. I'd like each of you to comment on a way in which the health system is not prepared today to deal with the coming onslaught of NASH patients and steps that you personally are taking or supporting in your country, your job, your home state, wherever, that will help us deal with this pandemic a little better. Brave one, go first. I'll answer the question because obviously I'm across the pond. Uh, we have the British Liver Trust, which is a fantastic organization here that's linking very heavily now um, as they go forward with diabetes and obesity, which is great to see. But I think one of their priorities for the next three or four years is to improve early detection so that more people are given information and diagnosed early at a stage where it can be reversed. And I suppose one of the reasons I left healthcare was to achieve exactly that. We're the only independent provider of Fibroscan services. We just buy us in and we do everything for you and walk away to gain that. But we've also opened lifestyle clinics so anybody has the right now to get early awareness of their liver. And Everybody we have introduced this to who is not a patient and just normal people absolutely engage with it and love it. And in fact, probably about a third of those people have fatty livers. They have normal soft livers. So it's very, very interesting, the engagement of people to awareness of their liver outside of healthcare, because the rest of us here come from predominantly healthcare, diagnosed patients who are the minority of people at risk. And they're the lucky few. They're going to get help. My whole aim was to develop increased access and awareness 
awareness. So I'm trying to help that, the British Liver Trust. But it's really, really key when the third biggest killer of people in the working population in the United Kingdom is liver disease. We need to start screening for it. It's just unbelievable from my perspective that we're not screening routinely. So examples like Nash Day and the work that's being done for this document is absolutely fantastic because it adds strength to the British Liver Trust. It adds strength to the International Coalition and GLI are leading from the front. So that's how I'm trying to help um, in the UK. Thanks, Louise. Other thoughts? I would just come back to what Stephen said, where we still have uncertainty as far as giving the patient a clear diagnosis and then a clear response as to whether that patient has responded, as to whether that patient has gotten better. And until we're closer, and, and I don't think the liver biopsy is, is in any way a solution to that. But I do believe that primary care physicians, all the other people that were trying to engage the patients themselves, they don't want to hear, well, you might have NASH, but I'm not sure. And you might have gotten better, but I'm not sure. So if we could come to a point where we're of confidence, first of all, in the, in the diagnosis, I think that will help many of the steps in this process. Great. Michael, Stephen? Just further to, to Becky's comment, Comment. You know, we can preach all day long and educate all day long to primary care, but let's be honest, in the U.S., those docs are, are work to the bone. I mean, you know, I, I, I was trained as an internist myself, and I quickly moved into gastroenterology because I wanted to focus my effort on one particular aspect of medicine. And then I honed that down even further into liver disease and even further into fatty liver. And I take my hat off to these guys that see just a wide variety of disease every day in clinic and, and are only given 15 to 20 minutes at most to see these people and to manage all of their metabolic comorbidities, not to mention everything else that's going on with the patient from psychiatric illness to orthopedic illnesses to pulmonary, renal, you, you name you name the, the organ system. It's a lot to do and still come across as being caring and compassionate and looking at your patient rather than type on a computer. And so we have to make it palatable from a, a legislative perspective as well as from a, a guidelines perspective for these people to, to want and to take the time out of that 15 or 20 minutes to ask or focus on liver disease. And whether that's making it a HEDIS measure, whether that's making it a, a better reimbursable situation for them, that we need to do that because otherwise... I don't think we're going to get widespread utilization of how to do this appropriately. We'll, we'll have pockets that are engaged and others that aren't, and we won't reach the critical mass that we need to really drive this disease in a positive direction. I mean, just look at COVID as a great example. How many people did we need to vaccinate before we bent the curve? How many people are we going to need to treat for fatty liver until we bend the curve away from the data that Arun Sanyal published a couple years back? looking at the rate of increasing incidence uh, from 2015 to 2030 in decompensating liver disease, 168% increase, liver cancer, 137% increase, liver death, 168% increase, all as a result of fatty liver. It's going to take quite a bit to bend that curve. So that, just my thoughts. Yeah, uh, I fully agree with Stephen. And going back to how we can get primary care on board with the limited time they have and how do we educate them without asking them to, to add another hour module to go through the electronic training that probably every healthcare system has. So I really would like to develop together, hopefully with the support of the Global Liver Institute and you, Roger, to really develop new tools to you know, engage a primary care provider in identifying patients with MAFLD, make it more, so to speak, fun for them and not just another bullet point on their list to address. And then hopefully, if we are successful, expand it to a national level, at least in the VA, and then potentially to other healthcare systems. That, thanks, Michael. That's great. I have a quick comment and then a quick one-sentence wrap-up question for everybody. My quick comment is this, that the other thing we can work on are the numbers behind the metrics, and that will wake up primary care and everybody else. Becky mentioned early on liver enzyme tests showing 
showing that 85% of the patients with advanced fibrosis in their trials are relatively close to normal, upper limit of normal level on the liver enzyme tests. I've said this on the podcast before, cholesterol treatment in the U.S. got serious when they stopped treating the upper limit of normal as the top 5% of the population and got down to a much lower level at which it was clear toxicity was increasing. With that as a thought, one sentence lightning around closing question. One thing you can do in the next six months that will conform with what we've been talking about and the action plan today. Stephen, I know you got to jump. If you're still here, let me let you go first. I think the next six months where we can galvanize, just like we're doing on this podcast today, where we have representatives from industry, we have patient advocacy, we have academic, really all we're missing is society representation. But I guess that potentially could be me from a a NAFLD special interest group and and Michael as a, a member of that as well. We just need to have more of these conversations and translate these conversations to people like Andrew that can take this to the Hill and and we can begin to deliver a cohesive message where we're all united, tackling first education and awareness. And as Becky mentioned, getting to an agreement on diagnosis is really going to be critical. So I'll uh, I'll stop there. Well, thanks, Stephen, and thanks for joining us this week. Becky, if you're ready, why don't you go next? I don't have anything additional to add. I agree with what everyone's saying, that we need clarity about the diagnosis and about the importance of NASH relative to the other diseases that virtually all of these patients have. These these are patients with a variety of metabolic disease and where NASH fits in their their overall health and well-being. And making that point uh, clearly, I think, will be critical. Well, that's great. And thank you for joining us today. And also thanks for your sponsorship of this episode and your increasing involvement and support of the GLI on a whole bunch of levels. Michael, you want to go next? Sure. So circling back to what Andrew discussed and outlined, I would really like to focus in the next six months working together with the GLI, Andrew and Donna, and to have U.S. champion for NAFLD established in the state of Virginia. That would be a major step forward for Virginia. I'm looking forward over the next six months to seeing the GLI, obviously International National Day, and some of the World Health Organization stuff that's going to be added to that. It seems to be getting a lot more traction and I'm really excited by that so I'd like to see where that's going in the next six months. Thank you Andrew. Thank you yeah I mean really I can I can echo a lot of what has already been said but I think specifically from my perspective a major success would be getting the Nash Care Act reintroduced so that would be a huge win kind of more broadly using all that you have all said today as experts and using the community voice you know having GLI act as a conduit that microphone to kind of get this cohesive message that we've discussed whether it's through our action plan or through other means, you know, kind of building support broadly, looking abroad as well outside of the United States, working with other plans over there, the Wilton Park Initiative and others, thinking about collaboration so that as a community, we can address this problem. And I think GLI, that's really my goal going forward, is ensuring the GLI acts as that kind of conduit to coalesce the community and address NASH. So, so Andrew, thanks for that and for coming to join and lead the conversation today. The only thing I think I would add, I was struck by Stephen's comment about HEDIS. And as you talk about the things the government could do in the NASH CARES Act, and I don't know, I haven't seen the act itself, but we need some way to standardize the importance of doing this. And if that's in the act, great. And if not, then we should start thinking about what we can do to support, including standards in things like HEDIS to, to that end, because I think that will be an important step. You know, they say that uh, people do what's inspected, not what's expected. So getting some inspection on this topic would be great. With that, let me thank everybody for joining today, Becky, Michael, Andrew, Louise, and let me set you folks free, and I'm going to go on and do the business section. Becky, again, thanks once more to Magical for sponsoring this episode and for your increasing engagement with GLI. And everybody else, we'll see you next week. This week's business report mostly talks about next week's episode and a couple of other exciting details. We keep moving forward with plans for Digital ILC 2021. Next week will be our second preview episode and the time at which we will announce our key opinion leader lineup for the digital ILC. Roughly half the slots have been filled already. I would prefer to announce the entire group in a single shot. As I said previously, we will hold same-day podcasts on June 24, 25, and 26, and finally, a wrap-up episode to be recorded on June 28, released on June 30. Fellow scientists, please join our experiment. 
At next week's episode, we will run our first trial of the live audience feature. This is how it works. If you would like to join the podcast live, please send your name and email address to questions at surfingnash.com, along with a request for an invitation to the live audience. If you're on our mailing list, you will receive an invitation to join tonight or tomorrow morning. If you follow Surfing Nash or Hep Dynamics on LinkedIn, we are sending a message that you may have received or seen before you even hear this. In any case, we need an email address to send an invitation. We have more slots than we anticipate possibly having listeners, like a thousand. So if you send an address, it is extremely likely you'll be in. This session will start at 3.30 on Monday, June 14th. We're requesting that audience members log in by 3.15 so we can conduct a sound check and audience test before we go live. Also, this will allow us to brief you on how to submit a question if you want to come onto the podcast to ask it. We will send more information with your invitation to participate. I hope you choose to do so. Hope to see you Monday. We're looking for feedback on episode 28. Last week, we ran the Alda Fermin episode with a completely different format. I narrated the story based on panels and interviews, sharing quotes from those sessions to reinforce our key points. It was our fourth most downloaded episode out of 72 at the eight-day mark. As we look at ways to cover same-day industry news in the future, we welcome your feedback on what you liked about this episode and what you didn't. If you're comfortable being public, please drop a note on our discussion pages on LinkedIn or Facebook. If not, please send an email to surfingnash.com. I'll get back to you for more feedback. And with that, I want to thank Louise and Stephen for their week-in, week-out excellence. Andrew, for doing a superb job presenting the GLI position and highlighting key points in the U.S. Nash Action Plan. And Becky and Michael for their excellent and thoughtful contributions throughout. I also want to thank the magic man, Mike Wilson, for salvaging yet one more damaged recording. And as always, Eric and Polly for everything they do every week. We will be back next Wednesday, June 16th, with our second preview episode for Digital ILC. At that time, I expect to announce the complete slate of key opinion leaders will be joining us during the Congress. Of course, if you accept our invitation to the live audience test on Monday, June 14th, you'll know all this two days in advance, and we'll have the opportunity to join the surfers on the podcast to ask them a question. Hope to see you. And until then, stay safe, surf on, bye-bye. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.